Welcome to HEQ&A, the podcast of History of Education Quarterly. I'm your host, HEQ co-editor Jack Schneider. Every few weeks, we'll dive into recent work from the journal, asking authors how their projects challenge or extend what we know about a topic, exploring what's interesting and surprising about it, and then taking a step back to consider broader implications. In the second half of the show, we turn our sights to teaching, so if you're an educator, make sure to stick around until the end. And now, let's hear from one of our authors. My name is uh, Gonzalo Guzman. I am currently a visiting assistant professor in educational studies at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. And the title of my article is Things Change, You Know, Schools as the Architects of the Mexican Race in Depression-Era Wyoming. So my article is about the creation of segregated schools and rooms that target Mexican-American and Mexican children in Wyoming. Uh, And my argument is public schooling actually does create a separate and distinct race in terms of that it, it creates the Mexican race in Wyoming. And my argument is that public schooling institutionalizes and codifies race in a way that it finalizes a racialization process. So the title of my article, I am very deliberate and specific when I say schools as the architects of the Mexican race, because I am saying that they actually do finalize and do create the Mexican race, that after this, there is no debate. Mexicans are non-white and schools prove it. What I always hear is why Wyoming (laughs) of all the states? And the reason why is because the current historiography, particularly Mexican educational history, majority is focused on the Southwest, particularly the border states of California, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. And that makes sense from a demographic perspective. But my work demonstrates that this is expansive in scope, that this is not just a Southwest phenomenon. This is truly a U.S. West phenomenon, if not really a national one, that immediately it problematizes this regional focus. And it shows that this is really happening from the U.S.-Mexico border, literally to the U.S.-Canadian border. Um, I do talk about Billings, Montana as well, a brief mention, but I do name that as well. Number two is, is it expands just the discussion of Wyoming. Um, Wyoming is not generally known for its historiography or social history. It's known for Yellowstone and Devil's Tower. The Wyoming tourist industry has doubled down on this. It's like, don't visit us for our history, visit us for our landscape. And so there's a particular narrative around Wyoming that is that For instance, although they had a permissive segregation law regarding uh, being able to build segregated schools, the myth is that no segregated school has ever existed in that state. And so this article is like, no, with an exclamation point. And I exhaustively, that's why there's so many footnotes to be like, here's all the evidence to show you that is not the case. What's interesting, particularly interesting about this is how this is shockingly similar to like cases in South Texas or Arizona or in California, that it's almost like it's speaking to a larger cultural phenomenon, like this culture of segregation. And other scholars have turned this as like Jaime Crow or Juan Crow, but it does speak to a particular racist and segregationist cultural system that is pretty much following Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant populations wherever they go in the United States. And it's shockingly similar um, no matter where they go. 
more importantly, though, is the role of the federal government in helping to foster and create this culture of segregation. Um, in my work in particular in Wyoming, this segregation system doesn't develop without federal help vis-a-vis -vis the New Deal, whether it be funding, legislation, it doesn't happen. And I think this is incredibly powerful because a lot of the work regarding Mexican educational history talks about this being more of a local phenomenon, that a local school board did this or the state did it. In the case of Wyoming, the federal government is doing it with them as well. Given the fact that technically Mexicans would be legally white, right? The fact that the federal government is also codifying this as creating white non-white people vis-a-vis -vis educational projects is incredibly surprising of how public this endeavor is. This is widespread. This is over a number of newspapers, not just in Wyoming, not just in federal reports, but also in uh, other states like Billings, Montana's reporting about what Wyoming's doing um, to Mexican children regarding segregation during this time period. So almost the audacity of these segregation racist endeavors during this time is very surprising in a shocking way. For me, I mean, this speaks to the power of educational history that I think with the case in Wyoming, the, the case with uh, Mexican-American educational history, literally schools play a distinct and special role in the racialization of an entire people, an entire community. In my article, I do highlight a transition that in the 1920s, you know, there is anti-Mexican sentiment there, but something's different once it's implemented in, in public schooling. Like there's no turning back. It's like, it's a statement about the future. So the broader implications is about the importance of this educational historical work, particularly the role of public schooling and racial projects in creating race itself. As for Wyoming, I mean, this immediately problematizes, you know, any notion that they're the equality state, quote unquote. I mean, just digging, this scratching beneath the surface, like a lottery ticket, you see that all this racial history comes to the surface and that Wyoming is the nation. I mean, if this can happen in Wyoming that has the lowest population of any state in the union, um, that is incredibly rural now, uh, that is incredibly isolated. If it can happen there, it happened everywhere because, of course, it speaks to a larger cultural phenomenon that is endemic to U.S. history. The second half of the show is dedicated to thinking about teaching. We ask authors to put on their guest lecturer hats and take students into the weeds. What should they pay attention to, methodologically speaking? What else should they be reading if they want to take a deep dive into the historiography? And where are their opportunities for further research? I would pair this article with the methodological article that David G. Garcia and Tara Yoso wrote also for History of Ed Quarterly, but also a, a book called Silencing the Past, which talks about the, the ways in which historical narratives have shaped our understanding of ourselves in the nation. So I keep on talking about the way in which Wyoming teaches about itself and remembers itself, but also how the nation remembers Wyoming as well. And really the Mountain West that from my work, I repeatedly come over um, politicians, current historians and teachers who will say, well, segregation never happened, but they'll also even name the schools that I write about in my work. So I'm like, there's a cognitive dissonance here of like, are they lying? But no, what's going on is that the historical narrative is so strong that there's nothing countering that mythos 
that that's all they can believe. So in terms of methodology, it speaks to the power of historical narratives in shaping beliefs about narratives and how much they really, really do shape our world vision. So immediately students can see like the power of these counter narratives, but how history, how these narratives even shape the evidence that we tend to look at. Like one of the things I'm surprised about is how national, international this story has been. Like I've literally had to go through sources and archives everywhere. And one example is the largest repository of narratives about what Wyoming is doing during the Great Depression regarding New Deal monies is located in Miami Beach. It's not in Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's not in the National Archives and College Park. It's in Miami Beach. I have no idea why it's there. I have no idea why they have it, but that's <laughs> the power of this story that in terms of methodology, like literally this speaks to that, uh, what people would think to be just a Wyoming story is really a national story that bits and pieces are everywhere. And this is the power of the historical work that we have to bring all those stories together to make a narrative. And that's why this work's so important. Oh yeah, I'm gonna name four books. The first one would be the work of Victoria Maria McDonald, Latino Education in the United States. This is an amazing collection of primary documents. She put it together and she offers historical context to it. it, it it's a, a brilliant intro to the field. Also the work by David G. Garcia, Strategies of Segregation. It, it specifically has a direct conversation between Oxford, California and how segregation of Mexican-American children happened there, but it tons of parallels to what happens in Wyoming. The work of Ruben Donato and Jared Hansen called The Other American Dilemma, who also talks about segregation of Mexican-American children, is from a multi-state approach. She talks about Texas, California, Colorado, Kansas, Alabama, Louisiana. So he's part of this new trend in the field of expanding the regional focus. And finally, the work of Phyllis uh, Barigan Gotz in her book, Reading, Writing, and Revolution, which talks about Mexican-American-centered education in South Texas, particularly a focus on uh, the escuelitas that are established in South Texas. So yeah, I recommend those. That's a, a wide berth, but either if, you know, you got a, a good take on the field if you go through those four texts. <laughs> so there is a a question that has yet to be answered in a, in a satisfactory way. And I mentioned this before, it's how could, uh, you know, a Billings, Montana, uh, Worland, Wyoming, Oxnard, California, Mission, Texas, how could these communities that have completely different histories that are across the nation in the U.S. West, how could they all have such similar experiences, particularly the ways in which they're treated in schools? So, are these school officials talking to each other? Is there some chat board? Is there some conference? Is like, how is this educational theory being dispersed? We don't know, but like somehow it's being transmitted. Somehow it's becoming a reflex, but where, where is it coming from? Because this is not a coincidence. It's coming from somewhere. It, to me, that, that, that would, that, there's your book. You find that archive where there are, are all these letters that they're sending to each other that like I'm doing this in Wyoming, I'm doing this in California, because it has to be there. there there's, no, there's no coincidence in history. It, it, it's there, it just someone needs to find it. To learn more, check out History of Education Quarterly Online. The journal's published by Cambridge University Press and it's carried by most academic libraries. 
You should also be sure to follow HEQ's Twitter handle, at HistEdQuarterly, which regularly sends out free, read-only versions of articles, and the show's Twitter handle, at HEQ&A. And don't forget, subscribe to the show so you don't miss forthcoming episodes. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. HEQ&A is produced at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Our producer is Jennifer Berkshire, and our theme music is by Ryan Shaw. I'm Jack Schneider. Thanks for joining us.